0: Welcome back, everybody. So, to our final guest, whose drink I'm holding, what don't I do here, really, uh, Jill Ruby Dawson, more on that later. She's the author of Trick of the Light, Magpie, Fed and Edie, Wild Boy, Watch Me Disappear and the best-selling Great Lover, which is about my doppelganger from here up, Rupert Brooke. Um I have a picture which proves that. Um, in addition, she's edited six anthologies of short stories and poetry and held many, many fellowships. She's here tonight to read for the first time, for the very first time, in actual fact, from her new novel, Lucky Bunny. And I say, Lucky you, please welcome Jill Dawson. <laughs>
1: Read. Right, um, Lucky Bunny is the story of Queenie Dove, who was born in the East End of London in 1933 to a very poor family. It was the Depression. And she discovered she had one amazing talent. She discovered it quite young. And it was a talent for thieving, which she made very good use of her whole life. So it's about a novel, it's a novel about fulfilling your talent. But I'm going to let Queenie introduce herself to you, um, and then I'm going to read you a little snippet. This is grown-up Queenie speaking. Queenie's not my real name, of course. The name I was given at birth is plain enough, well-known and easily looked up. Queenie's the name I took, chose for myself. Only the best for me, I remember thinking. The queen of everything, a cracking name. I wanted it, I took it, I made it mine. As there might be some proper consequences attached to my real name, it wouldn't be right to set my given name down. I shouldn't even call that one my real name, because now I think of it, isn't that the point? Queenie's real to me. For the purpose of this account, then, best you think of me as Queenie throughout, the name I've gone for most of my life. My best friend Stella knows my given name, but never calls me it. Yesterday she drove me up here to my new home by the river and as we picked up the keys from the estate agent's office and I signed Queenie Dove on the contract, she was giggling and shoving me in the ribs and trying to hide her excitement, whispering in my ear. Can you believe your luck sometimes? Go on, can you? When I turned the key to my own front door, Stella went on, don't you ever ask yourself, blimey, how did I end up here in one piece and get away with it all? You might find this strange, but honestly, I never have asked myself that. And it struck me hard, Stella saying it, as if now that she'd mentioned it, I'll have to pinch myself. My luck might fly off. I don't think I've breathed out yet. Am I safe? This old cottage has a back door and a garden that can't easily be reached. I noticed it right away, and it's nothing flash either. It doesn't draw attention to itself. It's not swanking. It's nothing like I could actually afford. Bricks and mortar in my own garden shed, a wad of money, all cosy, in the silk lining of my red leather handbag, a child sleeping outside in the car. Those things are real. Those are things, not ideas. But luck and getting away with it all? How did I get here, after all? So after Stella's gone back to London and it's late, midnight... And I'm lying for the first time in the brand-new, stiffly-squeaking bed, snuggling in the fresh, shop-scented linen, and geese are honking outside by the water. And there's the rest of the money, fat and solid, all piled up high in the otherwise empty white cupboard. I can't sleep for wanting to answer Stella's question. I'm so wide awake I have to get out of bed and wander into the front room, bumping into a crate. I put the light on and blink hard. My eyes fall onto the open door to the kitchen, on the wooden table, to the cherries bought from a roadside store that Stella's dumped in a blue china bowl, her contribution to the unpacking. Crumpled newspaper springs around the bowl, the purple-red cherries pretty against the blue china. I pop one in my mouth. I spread the newspaper out, glanced at the headlines. Even now, years later, I expect to read about more arrests, See names I know. Wonder if one day something will be said that could lead to me. But so far, so good. Stella's right then, surely. This is luck. I'm here in one piece. Because don't we all believe that bad behaviour will be punished? That those who stick to the rules will get their reward eventually? If not in heaven, then in a beautiful cottage by the river, with a healthy child and a table with fresh cherries in a bowl. Not me, though. I don't think I ever believed in fairness. Where would I have learned to expect that? No moaning and groaning and tearing at my clothes, either. You won't catch me repenting. Puzzling, but not repenting. Mum once showed me a picture of her as a really young girl with my dad standing in docklands at the edge of the water, men loading in the background and those huge cranes towering over her like weird insects. And I remember saying, where am I in that photo, then? And her answer, Oh, you wasn't even a twinkle in your dad's eye then. A shiver ran through me. Like I could see my own ghost there. How could that be? How could I be looking at a picture of a time when I didn't exist? But we can, can't we? It's what school teachers praise us for, and then tell us we have too much of. It's called an imagination. I'm good at that, I've learned. Making things up. Not telling tales though I'm not a telltale I don't want to drop certain people in it so I might change some names here and there but not the relevant things not the gist of it I don't think I'm a confessional person just a storyteller take what I say with a pinch of salt if you like luck always beggars belief the more someone insists something's true the more you've got to doubt it wouldn't you say it's important to me that you don't know the name my mother chose for me I hope I've left the other named girl behind, worked bloody hard at it. This magistrate, a woman, once said to me, I'm rather tired of hearing again and again from those breaking the law that they had a terribly troubled childhood. Everyone who passes through this court claims to have had an appalling childhood. Surely some people can transcend their childhood once in a while. Could we at least stop using it as an excuse for everything? She had this glossy black hair, like the oiled hair of a Doberman Pinscher. And she flashed a smile around the court as she said it. You know, the way a dog bears its teeth. What did I think listening to her back then? I thought she had a point. I was all for not making excuses. But she annoyed me too, I'll admit. I didn't examine things too much in those days, but dimly I might have wondered, does anyone transcend their childhood? I mean... Did she? Did she rise above it to be someone different from the shape cut out for her? Did her family expect a tearaway, a hoister, a criminal, or a madam, for instance, and instead they got her, a homework-producing head girl? I wasn't allowed to answer back, of course. I knew she didn't want an answer. She was bright and hard, skin stretched tight over that smile, it was probably a throwaway remark. She was just fed up, hearing the same stop stories time and again. But it's funny how that comment from years ago, ten years ago, sailed back just now. So now I'm going to flip forward. And Queenie's done a lot of crimes. She's very successful. She's also working in a club with her uh, boyfriend, who's a driver of getaway vehicles, Tony. Um, And the club is, uh, the system that is run there is, it's a legitimate club, a bit like this one, but there's a little, maybe you've got one of these, a book under the table for special services, and gentlemen seem to know that that book's available, and Queenie sits on the reception, and if she spots that that's what they're asking for, that's what she'll offer them. So she doesn't provide any of the services, she just shoves the book towards them, Uh, and her boyfriend is kind of hanging out at the club because he's a bit worried about her. Most nights at the club, Tony is there. He comes upstairs, signs in, smiles and chats to me, then goes through another door into the bar, but he usually sends a glass of champagne out for me, which I hide under the counter to sip between club members arriving. Sometimes he comes back to chat for longer and feel me up when no one else is there. One night, this white-haired gent is talking to me in his Basil Rathbone kind of voice, silly bow tie and a hunted look, leaning over the counter, obviously hopeful about the other book. He's actually talking about the dullest of things, the London pavements being hard on your feet, and I glance over my desktop to see that this old chap is wearing sandals, and his feet are bare with painted toenails, which he's obviously wanting me to admire. As I lean over to do this, I become aware of Tony, glowering just a few yards from us. The gent clocks him too, and murmuring something, seems to think better of asking me anything more, and goes on up the stairs to another room in the club. Tony comes, comes over to talk. I'm the jealous type, he says. He hands me the champagne glass he's brought me, eyeing the books under the counter meaningfully. He leans over and kisses me. Take the evening off. Ask Stella to cover for you. Oh, yes, what you're offering. A night at the Ritz? no. Tony stares at the counter again as if fixated on something. I take a sip from my champagne glass, glance around me. Two girls, student types, no doubt from St. Martin's School of Art, wearing bright scars, reeking of carnation perfume, clatter up the stairs on the arms of a man so tall and spindly he looks like a ghoul. I offer them the book and pen, smile in my best professional way. Marshall Street Baths, Tony says, when the girls have signed in and gone through to the bar. Hot bath. First class, bring your own sixpence and a clean pair of knickers. You don't half know how to spoil a girl, but I'm trembling. I feel my nipples tighten, even as I pop next door to ask Stella if she'll cover my last half hour of the shift. So we take a taxi to Marshall Street, and Tony smokes all the way. He sits close, but he doesn't touch me. I can feel the muscles in his legs through the fabric of his trousers. I'm thinking, I love the way Tony holds his cigarette cupping his hand like that and I love the way he draws on it so deeply the same way he does everything seizing the most pleasure possible from it you're very beautiful, he says I've been looking out of the window I turn around in surprise blinking corny is all I can think of to say but Tony doesn't smile his eyes hold mine I can't look away instead I surprise myself after a moment or two by nodding And then, after a second or two longer, smiling and saying, thanks. I somehow know that Marshall Street Bus is somewhere Tony takes girls, has taken girls before. I don't know how I know this. I know it with a strange kind of jealousy that mixes with the hot, deep, fizzing feeling in my stomach of something else. I see I'm right by the way Tony enters the building, the way he pays the attendant who lets us in by a side door. And by the silent way that money is given, towels offered, and the man looks me up and down. We step through into a chlorine-scented corridor, past banging doors and down a rabbit warren of corridors ponging of talcum powder and sweat, into a room that Tony has been given the key to and unlocks. I've only ever been here on a Friday afternoon when the cubicles are singing with children bathing and people shouting, More hot water in number three, please. I almost expect someone to turn the brass clock on the door and tell us how long we've got. Tonight, though, it's eerily quiet, and this is obviously some kind of private arrangement. The room smells strange of baking wood and mushrooms. The enamel tub in the centre is steaming with water, and someone has added bubble bath. A lavender froth sits on the top of the water. Tony puts his towel down on the brown tiled floor, takes off his socks and shoes, and begins unbuttoning his trousers. His seriousness suddenly cracks me into a big grin as he tells me to get undressed. Come on, Queenie Dove, too posh, are we, to get in the bath with your old fella? Are you my old fella, then? Tony's naked skin in the electric light is the colour of a new penny. I glance down and then quickly up again, giggle a little. Even after all the times we've been together, I feel like I've never stood in front of him as bare as this like he's asking me to now. He stands very still, then nods briefly in reply. It strikes me in a funny way as some sort of declaration. I somehow know that this is as close as as he'll ever come to telling me he loves me. My face bursts into a broad smile and I kiss him. He breaks away, turning his back to me as he climbs into the tub, gasping a little at the heat. I lean towards him in the water as I undo my blouse. Steam makes my cheeks hot and pulls at my curls. My skirt brushes against the side of the tub and is soaked through. The air is liquid and the whole place a big hot cloud. I can only make out a blurred Tony in the heat. I can't help laughing and throwing a flannel towards him, leaning forward to whisper something filthy in his ear and kissing him again. I'm thinking as a button flies off my blouse and my stockings fall to the floor in a wet heap, that another thing I love about Tony... How unashamed he is I put out my hand And the tip of his penis feels like velvet I hold it tight Watching his face He's all mine, I'm thinking
0: Um, and, and in the great game of Nipple Bingo, which I've been playing for the past three years, I have to say tonight's house is the first time all three authors have mentioned nipples in <laughs> their reading. So well done, Joe Dawson, for that. I'm going to slightly cool down. Um, so um, for, your, for your book on Rupert Brooke, you went to Tahiti. Um, and I'm wondering, did you do shoplifting for this book? Um, How far did you go with your research? And was there anything that surprised you?
1: I knew you were going to ask me that. I I, um, I did decide I wasn't going to talk about my shoplifting, but I mean, hasn't everyone done it? Yeah,
0: we've all done about shoplifting. Yes, shoplifting. Yes, I have. Absolutely. I didn't
1: take part in the Great Train Robbery.
0: Oh no, you spo- did. spoiler about her own book that it's the Great Train Robbery that she's talking about at the end. Anyway. So no,
1: but for my research, um, I did read up on a lot of people who did right. lots of shoplifting. Right. Um, and um, there's a book out at the moment called Borstal Girl, which I haven't yet read, but I think is very much. Um, uh, she would be a contemporary, Eileen McKinney, I think she's called, Mm. of Queenie, really. She's in the same sort of... She's in South London rather than East London. But she was definitely doing all this hoisting and trained up by other women... Um, because big department stores were just kind of happening at that point, and that was definitely what was going on.
0: Yes, it's kind of weird that sort of you know Selfridges went to America and then bounced straight back and gave these women a place to go and and shoplifting. But Queenie started shoplifting when she was a girl. Yes, um, and the people who taught her how to shoplift in some kind of crazed. Apprentice style version, where the ten green bottles—you yes. know, the, the, well, not ten, but the green—the prostitutes were, yes. they, were they real? The green bottles. Well,
1: I made those up, and I made up the idea of the green bottles because they used to have bottled parties. That was what they were called in the, in yeah. the Second World War, where there was sort of drinks that were s- kind of you know secret black market alcohol. All oh right, like kind um, of so like bathtub yeah, gin yeah, equivalent. Exactly. Okay. Um, and so these women, I imagined, had come from that, but they were based on a band of women th- thieves in South London. There were many more of them called the Forty Thieves. And right. They were real women, they were and real they ones. were kind of characters very like the characters in my novel. So the sort of Gloria character, who's very sort of, I picture her a bit like Diana Dawes. Diana Dawes, exactly. She's really, exactly, she's really buxom yeah. and
0: she's hard faced, yes. but hot. Right. <laughs> and um <laughs> right. and I, I and, and that's what I think that's what I think about her. And she's and she's here, isn't she? She's she's. Uh, you know, 50, 60 years pre-Shoreditch house, but she's just down the road. I mean, you describe locations that are very real, and you also talk about the Bethnal Green tube disaster, which is not closing early on a Friday night, but how many people died?
1: Nearly 200. 198 people died. No, sorry, 178. Mm. But actually, they always say, you know, that was a rough calculation, and because it was covered up, because it was in the middle of the war, and so it was considered Mm. bad for morale... Um, there weren't accurate newspaper reports, so you can't actually say the figure, but that's between 178 and 200. I mean, I had no idea that no, that had even happened I until I, I
0: read the book. And I th- Were there other things that you discovered that...
1: Well, that one was one of the most shocking ones, because actually I lived in Hackney for 16 years, and I used the Bethnal Green Tube. And there is a little plaque there now that you'll notice, and there's a campaign mm. to sort of make more of it. It's like the Hillsborough disaster. Nearly 200 people were crushed down the tube, um, you know, because they were sheltering there. And Queenie's
0: there with her nan, isn't yes. she, during an air raid? And it's this yes. incredible moment where she's sort of separated from her, but we feel that her nan has sacrificed herself in some yes.
1: way. Well, I think also I was thinking about the idea that Queenie is obviously a flawed character in the sense that she is a professional thief, but I think she's quite a loving one. And my theory is that to be loving, one must have received some love from somewhere. And I think that's where she gets it from, her nan, who is the only sort of force... Loving force in her life, and then the nan dies in that. Occasion.
0: I must have met when I was reading the book that I kept envisaging Nanny Pat from The Only Way Is Essex, um, <laughs> b- because she's just this kind of she's just kind of gnarled, eternal, you know, lignum vitae. She's just, you know, there's nothing going to get through this woman. Where, uh, whereas, you know, and it's that strength is skipped a generation to the yes. daughter because the mother is actually quite a weak, yes. not character, but in terms of her writing, but she's quite weak, isn't she? More yes, she's
1: yes, totally. I mean, she's. Uh, she sort of abdicates responsibility, yeah. and she's passive. I mean, the one thing I was thinking about... Um, was David's earlier remark, I think, about the idea of giving up and being passive as being a brave thing. I must mm. say, I think the absolute reverse, and mm. this novel is all about that, that the force of whatever you do is better than nothing. Mm. So, OK, she does many bad things, criminal things, but actually, I think you'll find I'm pretty sympathetic towards her. Oh, you
0: are. <laughs> you can be, you know, you're can. You very much... You know, you're Queenie's number one fan. Yeah. Um, I I, I I don't want to say too much because it's so it. <laughs> exclusive about you you're talking about it for the first time but the mother does or doesn't do something terrible mm, in the book mm. and I can't work out if she does or doesn't do that terrible thing and do you know? Um, do you think she does? I think what so th- annoying for everybody who sorry, doesn't know sorry, what a terrible people, thing is. Well, all sorry.
1: That, all that can be said is Queenie is a child when this thing happens. So her understanding is always limited and no one bothers to fill her in Mm. about what really happened. And the one person who might have filled her in would have been her Nan. Um, But actually at that point, it's just the beginning of the Second World War, so Queenie's evacuated out of London. So the narrative is broken for her. So she doesn't really know the truth about her mum, And she comes to her own conclusion, but I leave it like that for the reader too, that you also don't know what really happened because That's often the way it is in life,
0: isn't it? And do you know what happened? Do you have a clear view on what you think happened? I have a clear view, yes. She did or she didn't?
1: I think she probably did. I think she did as well. Mm, So we spoiled it. I think it's the only... And my editor and the people who know the book.
0: But I think it's the only thing that she did do and I think in a way that was a saving character. She actually did something even though it was so dreadful. God, we shouldn't move on. (laughs) It's so stressful for the people who don't know. Um, uh, you, You blubbed about the great train robbery. Um, and I just think, I thought, God, what a reach. She's bringing The Great Chain Robbery into her novel. Um, but actually, it's brilliant, because um, the, the, the Great Chain Robbery happens, um, you completely get your fact right about it, and you're, you're, not, you're not equivocal. Queenie is the, wo- the only woman in The Great Chain Robbery. How does that come about?
1: Well, you know what? In researching this book, I was reading a lot of criminal autobiographies, and, and they're like, sort of, or, like rogue biographies is the form, and there's a lot of boastfulness in criminals' accounts of their own behaviour, of course. And there's a lot of exaggerating, there's a lot of downright lying. And I thought it would be absolutely fine for this book to be in that genre of a kind of boastful, this is my criminal life. I did this, I was right there, I met Ruth Ellis I and wanted to say, the together, craze. you know, and, and then I did this. So Queenie just does put herself right at the centre of the criminal world. Because I'm also doing a little history of the criminal world from 1933 to 63. And everything I read, which was a history of the criminal underworld, didn't really have any women in it. You know, there's a Cray's um, biography by John Pearson, a really f- mm. famous one, The Profession of Violence. And there's Violet Cray, the, the Cray twin's mother, who of course does feature heavily, but also there's a scene where there's a terrible murder in Stoke Newton. And John Pearson writes, A blonde cleaned up the blood. And it's like Blonde, who is this person? So I was writing about these blondes, you know, these missing women who actually, by association, were criminal, even if they weren't participating, but some were actively participating. So because Queenie's sassy, and she is a bit of a liar, she told you at the beginning, you know, take what, with a yes, pinch of salt, if yeah. you like, like all stories. Um, and also, there is a sort of riff on Mole Flanders, and that's the tone of that is kind of, I did this, but maybe I didn't. And, you know, th- that's very much the opening of the novel. So yes, I've made her absolutely pivotal in the Great Train Robbery and anyone who's researched it knows there weren't any women.
0: But she, but there also there the could have been mm-hmm. because of the mm-hmm. way that you, the way you describe it and I think it's kind of, it's, it's kind of interestingly feminist without being high-handed and, you know, difficult about it. It's, it's she, she's there um, or she's not there but the reason she's n- there or not there is because of her hot gay brother which I think yes. is the other thing yes. we haven't talked about.
1: <laughs> I glad you think Hot, yeah. He totally is hot. very hot.
0: Bobby's hot. <laughs> yeah. I just wish he didn't have the OCD.
1: Ah, uh, but that's through his terrible time in Borstel. I see? know. So he, had to have a, he had to have a symptom. He couldn't go through that experience. No, because
0: so I was unspoiled. thinking when I was writing, I was thinking, oh, here's another, like, sad, gay character no, from the 90s. So. No, 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 no. But actually, he would have been at that time. It's not like he was yeah. going to have, like, a lovely life. You know, he wasn't in San Francisco in Buena Vista Park with Titania. <laughs> It wasn't happening for him. Um, so the book did seem to me, though, to be like about a hundred pages too short. Oh, um, really? And yeah, it did, it did, it did. And I was thinking, what, what was cut? And or. What is next? Because I know you have a new two-book deal, and I'm thinking mm. she's got to come back. Queenie's got to come no, it's back. Funny she's such enough. a great character. It's
1: interesting you think it's short because I did have a, a whole other bit where she went off to Marbella, you know. Scene. started this whole other life. And
0: Her El Dorado phase no, that awesome was. Because
1: <laughs> Bobby got killed in it, so you wouldn't have liked that scene. Um, and actually, there was about 30,000 words of that, and I cut all of that and decided it was much better to end on a triumphant note. And how I think of it is Thelma and Louise without the suicide at the end.
0: Okay.
1: Because why shouldn't they just go on? You know, people no, do I think No,
0: gr- I, I think it's great that she gets away with it, but I would love to see the bit yeah. that you're talking about, you know, where 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 Bobby... I mean, it, d- it did feel truncated to me mm. in that way. I don't mean in a badly written no. way. I mean in a kind of, like, what I want more of, you know, I want to know more about what's happened. Would you, would you revisit half?
1: I might. And also, I do think, I might, but not for the next book. Uh-huh. And I do think s- in some ways she might be a revisiting of other earlier books of mine. Because Which ones? Well, Magpie has a young woman shoplifter. Mm-hmm. Nothing on the scale of Queenie, but she's set in a council estate in Hackney mm. in a similar territory. And Trick of the Light has a violent relationship. Mm. That's what that's about, and there's very much a feature here. So yeah. I think in some ways there's a revisiting that goes on, but in different characters.
0: Perhaps. Okay, okay. And th- the book has been sold as a telly three-parter to the BBC. It's been optioned. Optioned. Oh, we all know what that means. So we all know it um, exactly. But but but, but t- um, are you involved in that at all? Are you writing it? Are you?
1: No, I'd love to cast. Uh, you know. Oh. Jamie Winston, as Queenie, or something. But, but no, no one's f- she actually
0: would be fantastic yeah, for that. She?
1: Yeah, um No, not at this stage. I think it's early days.
0: Okay. Um, and I know that you, you you have done this new, you know, new deal with Settle. What are you doing for your next? You sound like you're quite advanced with it because you're not doing Queenie. So
1: no, I'm I'm doing a ghost story for the first time because actually I like doing something different every time. And Clearly,
0: Rupert Brooke to this. <laughs> yes, you do. And
1: that's. Um, kind of where I'm going next, and I can feel that it's, well, it's contemporary, so it's set in the fens where I live, and it's sort of spooky, and I've just got a very vague feeling about it, but I know it's very different, so it's not London, it's not historical, it's not sassy and loud and fast, it will be slow and Spooky. (laughs)
0: Beca- <laughs> I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, past historical examples that you've drawn on so and other things. So this is, this is not drawn on the kind of ghost story that was you're circulating in the 60s or 70s it or 80s It probably this will, ta- okay. funnily
1: enough. That's a good uh, sort of, you know, I'm not sure yet, but I can feel already that in the reading that I do, that's kind of what happens. I start right. to find things and channel them and think, well, I'll pop that in or that's what I'll draw on. And actually there are some great stories set in the Fens. I mean, it's a place that was... It's, it's a weird, it spooky, dank weird. place. Mm. And bleak and sort of forgotten and feels very far away. And yet, you know, I'm going back there tonight. It's an hour and a half half on the train. It's not actually that far. It's
0: (laughs) 10,000 years back in time. Okay, questions from the audience. Uh, Sylvia, of course. Hello. Were you you kind of channeling your inner Jackie Collins when you were doing doing Queenie? I haven't
1: read that, that, I have to say. Oh, there's a film, is it? Uh, Lucky... What, what's the... Jackie
0: it's team? a TV movie. Oh, don't even know I have, that. of no. course, seen it. But, but.
1: Um, <laughs> interestingly, just thinking about Jackie Collins for a moment, I have got ranked starlets in there, of which would be absolutely of the sort mm. of 50s, you know... Um, who went on to be huge stars. No, I think the thing is that I feel it's at great cost. I think that's one version. That's the version... I don't feel it's empowering, actually, mm. at all. I, don't, I think that's the version Queenie would like you to have. And when you look at the lives of men, of men and women and how it differs if they're imprisoned, for example, women are separated from their children. Uh, women, If men are in prison, win, women tend to hold the family together, so men come out to something... I mean, My mum worked at a women's prison for 15 years and actually I'm very interested in the very small proportion of criminals who are women. Um, there's only 4,000 women in prison in the UK and there are 80,000 men. So it's a very small proportion. But So actually I think it's at great cost. But of course Queenie doesn't and it's her story and this is how she's going to tell you it. And I trust the reader to have some intelligence and sort of read between the lines and take, you know, some of it is spirited and true but some of it is Tremendously painful.
0: I mean, she... she uh, I think, interestingly for her, as well as her time in prison, in jail, yes. there's also her enclosure when she's having the baby. Equally, yes. she's imprisoned. Yes. She can't go out. It's socially unacceptable for her to be out when yes. she's heavily pregnant. Um, she doesn't have a husband with her, so where the fuck is this baby yes. from? People yes. are alarmed by her. And I, you know, and I got a really strong sense of that uh, in, in a way from the book.
1: Well, this was kind of pre-the pill. And everything I was reading about the lives of women... Um, it's just quite hard to find them, but I found enough, and I'm, I'm hesitant to mention some of them because they are still around. But um, <laughs> I'm sure you said it was private. But it's people fine. like Barbara Windsor, for yeah. example, if you read her autobiography, remember she had Ronnie Knight with her husband, who was tried many times for crimes. Mm. I think that's safe to say, uh, allegedly, or something. But anyway, also that she was trying to have a life like men were having. So having sex, she's very open about this, as often as she wanted, as young as she was, from 17 onwards. But, you know, she felt pregnant. She had terrible abortions, miscarriages. It it wasn't just okay for her to Hmm. act the way the men did. I think there is a tremendous cost. Because women's lives are different, and they are more vulnerable, and especially if we're talking a period before the pill.
0: And do you think I was going to say it's interesting that do you think that Queenie's story could be a story of now if we were thinking of kind of the Queenie equivalent of 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 now, and she had reproductive control, and she was sassy, postmodern feminist. Yeah, girl. I think this would be
1: very different. That would be a different exploration for me because mm. for lots of my novels I've looked at, you know, women's sexuality at different eras, so in the 1920s with Fred and Edie, that was very much about whether she was at liberty to take a lover when she was married, and a younger lover, or earn more money than her husband, and that was a true story, and those were the things that vexed people in the Daily Mail at the time.
0: (laughs) It still vexes them now, let's be honest. (laughs) 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 So
1: anyway, so I think I have looked at that, about the lives of women, and how those kind of freedoms that we might take for granted... Have changed and the ways in which they haven't changed, the ways in which things are still, I mean, sexual violence towards women is Mm. still very much a part of many women's lives.
0: I want to say thank you to Joe Dawson. Um, I'm also going to say uh, thank you to Thomas, Vanessa, Stephen, and all of the Barker at Shoreditch House for hosting us tonight, to David Whitehouse, to Chris Adrian, to Joe Dawson, and all of you. We return after a summer break when I'll have an amazing tan for a Scottish person um, on S- September the 14th, um, and our guests will be Janice Galloway, um, one of the BBC National Short Story finalists, and Aurica K. Johnson, if you can believe that. I will see you then. Thank you.